and you all will probably leave this session as confused as I will, and those who aren't here, well, they're just going to be a hot mess the next time they come back, because we're going to go off a pretty deep end this morning. And for those of you who are wondering, yes, that is Father Nevada DeLapp who's with us this morning. For those of you who are here in the ballroom days, you remember that name. Um, for those of you who are newer to us, Father was our Father DeLapp was our first version of Father Mark before we brought Father Mark in the door, so there's that. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this day and this opportunity to gather together under the banner of your word. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would breathe life into us, to speak to us with clarity about these difficult things that we find in this book, and help us to know how to live according to your word as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start here with a quote. Um, most of you all know my daughter got married this past summer. Her father-in-law is a pastor in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, the conservative folks. Um, and, and so I was telling him that I was teaching on the book of Revelation. I was, uh, we were texting back and forth about it. And this is, this is what I got from him. He said, one of his very favorite quotes from seminary was a wise professor who said, if you're going to preach the book of Revelation, pick one commentary and stick with it. You may not be right, but at least you won't be confused. <laughs> so that's, that's wisdom coming to us from the Presbyterian church through somebody who's a new relative of mine, on and on and on. Uh, so we're going to follow our typical pattern of review and overview. We'll read the chapters. We'll get into the chapters Again, this is going to feel a little bit like a freight train because now we're really into the deeper material. But where I want to begin um, this morning is I actually want to revisit a conversation that we took up last week, and I, and I talked to Karen about this. Karen Overbeek asked the question about the invocation of saints that we were talking about, and um, she said, was there anything in Scripture that evidences the apostles, the 12, post-ascension, invoking the saints? Do we find that anywhere in scripture? So the answer's, the answer's no and yes, right? The answer's no because we don't directly find that, but the answer is yes in a sense because we find the apostle John writing about these bowls of incense that come before the throne of grace. And, and so this points to a very important question because since the Reformation, um, this idea of invocation of saints or advocation of saints, as we also talked about it, has been a very hot topic of debate in, in theology, right? So for the first thousand years, it was not an issue. Really, for the first uh, 1,500 years, it was not an issue. The Reformation occurs. It is an issue. It, it remains an issue. Um, and, and so how do we do theology? So we talked last week about these kind of four levels or layers of theology that we call dogma, doctrine, discipline, doct dogma, doctrine, devotion, and discipline. And for the better part of Christendom, this idea of the invocation of saints has been left at a devotional type of a level. Um, it may be talked about doctrinally, but it's certainly not been um, espoused as, as dogmatic per se. But the question within that question is, what do you do when the scripture seems silent or unclear on an issue? How do you wrestle through what is good sound theology and what is bad uh, theology and, and figuring out the difference between the two? So I want to lay alongside of this idea of the invocation of saints a parallel example um, because scripture is silent on infant baptism, right? There, there's nothing in scripture per se that says infants shall be baptized or shall not be baptized. It's simply not there. What we find in the book of Acts is household baptisms 
And there's a reasonable assumption that within household baptisms, there plausibly were infants, but it's silent. It is not there. It does not explicitly say that within the household, infants were baptized. So if you're going to make the argument either direction about infant baptism for it or against it, you're arguing from silence in scripture. It's, it's not there. Are we clear on that so far? Everybody with me? So what we do know about infant baptism is that it was a common practice in the church by the second century. Um, Some even suggest that within the first century it was there because it was common by the second century. And the questions we have to ask is, does this practice have good theological grounding or is it opposed to sound theology, right? That's the fundamental question, whether we're talking about infant baptism or invocation of saints or those more muddled questions that are in scripture. Now, let's be clear, where we're talking about faith and morals, the, the scriptures are clear. We don't have an issue about whether or not Jesus is Lord and the basic morals that accompany that. So what we're talking about, again, is more devotional practices within the church. And infant baptism is more of a devotional practice that has a doctrine built around it. And uh, again, the, the, uh, the scriptures, I would argue, are actually less silent on the invocation or advocation of saints than it is on infant baptism, because while it's not explicit in the New Testament writing, as we looked at Revelation 5, 8 last week, we talked about these bowls of incense that are being presented um, in the heavenly realm, and there is an awareness of these prayers beyond just God alone, right? So there's an awareness in the realm of heaven about prayers that are being prayed from earth into heaven, and it goes beyond specifically the, the triune God himself. And again, it was practiced in the early church. So how do we do theology well? And we talked about dogma, doctrine, devotion, and discipline as kind of the four main layers But then when you come to classical Anglicans and Richard Hooker in particular, he talks about scripture, tradition, and and reason. And then we can get off into the weeds about the arguments of scripture, tradition, and and reason because those are there within the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Anglicans, and and the more liturgical churches as well. But the bottom line of that is what, what does scripture say? What does it not say? And what do we do when scripture seems to be a little bit muddled or silent on an issue? Then the next thing we do is look to what tradition has said, the the living tradition that has accompanied scripture. And, And again, we can look to infant baptism as an early practice within the church. And we have to ask ourselves the question, in the earliest days of the church, were the early Christians trying to do things that were in agreement with scripture, or were they openly trying to reject what was present in scripture, right? That's the fundamental idea because the scripture is simply silent. So what was the early church doing? The early church was baptizing infants. The early church was invoking saints in prayers. Those were things that were normative practices within the early church that again, scripture is simply silent. So we talk about that in terms of tradition and was that tradition um, opposed to scripture or, or was there a solid case of theology built with that tradition that becomes a devotional type of practice? And then the third thing is reason, the interplay of our informed conscience that interplays with tradition and interplays with scripture. So I can't give you a perfect answer, but I can give you a framework for how we do theology, right? Dogma, doctrine, devotion, and discipline, and scripture, and tradition, and reason. What does the scripture say? What did the early church practice? And what does our informed conscience say? How does it interact with those things? And we're going to have to leave it there and move the train forward. So if you have questions about that, again, please feel free to call me, email me, come into my office and argue with me. All of those things are open and available to you, but we got to get on to our text. 
Okay, Revelation chapters one through three, we said we had the first revelation of Jesus and the first vision of heaven. Then chapter two and three, chapters two and three, we had the writings to the churches as a result of the revelation of Jesus Christ and this first vision of heaven. So revelation of Jesus, vision of heaven, and John write to these churches, and he does. Then chapters four and five, we get this second vision of heaven and a response of worship, and we have a scroll that's yet to be opened and a response of worship. So chapters four and five are all about another vision and another response of worship and another thing that is going to happen. So if one, two, and three were revelations of Jesus Christ and visions of heaven and writing these letters to the churches, now we get a revelation of heaven again in chapters four and five and a scroll that is to be happened. So there's some vision uh, that happens in heaven and something that's going to take place as a result of that uh, uh, vision that opens as a normative pattern for us. So then when we get into chapter six and seven, I'm just gonna give a quick overview, then we're gonna read it, then we're gonna go into our discussion and see what we come up with. So chapter six, we have the opening of the seven seals of the letter. Chapter seven, we have the sealing of the 144,000 and the multitudes of the nations. And again, I want us to note the pattern when we read chapter six and seven of the operative work of God and the responsive act of creation, right? Just like we had the operative God, work of God in chapter one that was the revelation of Jesus Christ that led to the letters. Chapters four and five, we had the operative work of God, which is the seals and the cooperative work of, of, of creation, which is to worship. Now we've got this operative work of God and the response of creation. And in chapter six, we're gonna see that Jesus opened six of the seven seals and this tribulation is unleashed, that's significant. And then in chapter seven, we're gonna see that the elect are sealed and the people praise God and that's significant. So thematically, that's where we are. And let me just go ahead and start reading in chapter six, verse one, and you all can follow along. John writes, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come, And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Chapter seven. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and excuse me, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Confused yet? It's going to get a lot worse, and I'm, I'm just going to apologize in advance. So what I want to do is begin with the end in mind and, and work backwards in a sense. So I want to talk about chapter 7 first because it envisions four things. I'm going to list them, then I'm going to discuss them, and we're going to work backward into chapter 6. The first thing that we see is the posture of worship by the redeemed in light of the victory of the lamb, right? That's what we see. The second thing we seal, and again, this is in reverse order, the 144,000 who are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The third thing that we see is an innumerable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And then the fourth thing we see is the question of who will come out of the great tribulation that will point us back to chapter six. 
So those are the four main ideas that we see in chapter seven, a posture of worship, a number of 144,000 who are sealed, an innumerable multitude, and this idea of a great tribulation, and here we go. So the posture of the worship by the redeemed in light of the victory of Lamb points us to the obvious answers that in heaven, again, the primary activity is worship. Now that's not the only thing we'll be doing in heaven, but that is the primary thing we'll be doing. We're not just getting harps and wings and sitting on clouds for all of eternity. That's, that's not the image of creation in, in eternity. The image of creation is grounded in worship, and I imagine there are all kinds of cool things that we're gonna get to do for all of eternity, starting with getting to know one another and just enjoying the fullness of our relationship with each other without this thing called sin that compromises that from time to time. So that doesn't really require any further explanation, but there are some really cool things going on in this 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so we ask, who are these sons of Israel and what does this 144,000 mean? Well, the 144,000 is, is a, again, a, a magnified symbol of completion, right? 12 tribes of Israel times 12, another completed number, means a, a perfected number of Israel are gonna be around the throne of God. Don't make more of that like some denominations have where they believe actually 144,000 people will be in heaven and the rest of us are in real trouble. That, that, that actually has been a literalist type of interpretation. So we don't wanna go there. We wanna hold to the symbolic reality that it's a, it's a number of perfection multiplied by a number of perfection that says a whole lot of people are gonna be around the throne of heaven. But let's talk about these 12 tribes of the sons of Israel because they are not all sons of Jacob. So, who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel? Jacob, right? But the 12 we get in this listing are not all the 12 sons of Jacob. So for example, Dan is not represented. He's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Why is Dan not represented? Because Dan was chastised in the Old Testament as being unfaithful. So, so Dan's out and who's in? Who knows your 12 sons? Manasseh. Manasseh's in and Dan's out. So who is Manasseh? Manasseh was actually a son of Joseph, not of Jacob, who was born of an Egyptian wife who was given to Joseph by Potiphar. So we're getting pretty messy here. What is this envisioning for us? Some of those who are being perfected around the throne are outside of the Israelite bloodline. They're Gentiles. There's an envisioning of the Gentiles being around the throne of God here. Joseph is included, and Joseph is the only son of Rachel who was Jacob's true love, and all of the 11 come from Leah and the concubines. So it's really, really messy, right? You're not gonna find a clean line of the 12 because if you just go back into the Old Testament and you read who gave birth to whom, right? It was only Joseph who was born to Jacob and, and Rachel, and the rest of them were coming from other women who, uh, you know, he kind of, hung out with a little bit, but didn't really want to have to. So is that fair so far to all my Old Testament scholars? Nevada, you're laughing. <laughs> I've gotten this mostly right. <laughs> okay. Benjamin? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Right. So it's, it's, the point is it's as messy and not as pure as it appears to be. Yes, Benjamin is also from Rachel. So the point, the larger point in all of this is that salvation is not a birthright and God is the final judge of our salvation, right? 
Salvation doesn't come by birth, it doesn't come by bloodline, it comes as a gift of God and he gives it as he wills. And again, the 144,000 is symbolic of completion and of fulfillment. That sets us up very nicely as the transition takes place from the 144,000 to this innumerable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, envisioning for us the reality that we know that Christianity is a universal religion and all who find their life in Christ will be with him for eternity. Pretty simple and straightforward point coming out of that transition from 144,000 to people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And then we get to the final point that gets us to the messiest part of this conversation, which is this great tribulation that points us back to chapter six. What is this great tribulation and what are we to make of it? So first and foremost, we need to say that, and if you look in the context of the text itself, this great tribulation actually is in a sense coming after the letters that were written in chapter two and three. In fact, chapter four, verse one says, these are the things that will take place after this, right? So there's the vision of Jesus, there's the vision of heaven, there's the writing of the letters in chapters one, two, and three, and then chapter four begins, these are the things that will take place after this, there's the um, opening of the seals and there's this great tribulation. So we can't take that too literally either because tribulation was going on as the letters were being written. That's part of the point of the book of Revelation. But it is to say there's a bigger picture going on that we need to talk about. And if we think about this idea of great tribulation where it should take us back first is to Matthew 24. So let's spend just a second going back to Matthew 24. So we're going to read Matthew 24, and we're going to read the words of Jesus, and then we're going to lay them in to the book of Revelation and our study here of chapter 6 in this conversation about the uh, Great Tribulation. Chapter 24, verse one of Matthew's gospel, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And if you go to Israel, you can actually see those stones thrown down onto the ground. It's an amazing sight that reminds us of, of the actuality of our, of our historicity of our faith. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered him, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places and all these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, so there's tribulation, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, we all know what this refers to, right? This is the destruction of the temple specifically that he's talking about here. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop go... Um, 
excuse me, not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. So there's great tribulation specifically, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather." Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other." From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. So we get really, really messy here because we have in chapter 24, verses three through nine, the beginnings of birth pangs, right, that he's talking about. And then we get into verses 15 through 28, and he specifically talks about a great tribulation, but he ties it again to what? The temple destruction, right? There's a great tribulation that's happening around the temple destruction, and we know that's true. Right? We can look back in human history and we can see, because we have it recorded for us, the great tribulation that took place around the temple destruction when Rome comes in, wipes it out, and establishes its desecration in the temple. And then we have in verses 29 through 44, a look ahead toward the eschaton. So several things going on here. There's Jesus' words. The imagery in Revelation reflects these words. There's the idea of a great tribulation that's going on. Jesus ties a great tribulation to the to the temple itself, yet this tribulation also seems to suggest an enduring to the end of an age, and now we've got to get into the the messiness of what we call this thousand-year reign, and this is where things are really going (laughs) to go sideways. So let's hold on to to Matthew 24. I want you to go back to Revelation and look with me at at Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and following. I promise this is going somewhere. You're not going to like it because it's going to be messy, but it does tie together and we need, to, we need to talk about it in this way. So if we go to Revelation 20, chapter 20, verses 2 and following, well, we'll just do, go from verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. 
Then I saw thrones seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we're mixing a whole lot of things together here and it's important because this is what's setting the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation and this is where the messiness of the interpretation of the book of Revelation really begins to emerge. So I'm doing this now for a reason so you can walk away mad and confused and you can come back and we can talk about it again and maybe we can clean it up as well as we can. So again, Jesus ties a great tribulation to the temple But then we get this great tribulation in in Revelation, not to mention a thousand year reign. And the question becomes with this thousand year reign, do we deal with it literally or figuratively? And the reason I point that out is that in Jesus' uh, own words in Matthew 24, there's no mention of a thousand year reign before he comes back, right? And that's why historically, most of the churches, and when I say most of the churches, I mean the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and many Anglicans interpret this thousand year reign as figurative, not literal. Yet the book of Revelation talks about a thousand year reign, so others want to interpret that more literally. And then you get into the messiness of if you're going to interpret it literally, is it something that has already happened or is it something that's going to happen? Right, so there's the symbolic, there's the futurist, and there's the historic perspective on this idea wrapped around tribulation and thousand year reign. Still with me? I'm gonna show you a graph that's gonna mess you up even more, but hopefully it will also help clarify. So these are the schools of thought around this thousand year reign, and again, this idea of the tribulation. One is that it's figurative because Matthew's gospel says no one will know the hour and it will come unexpectedly, therefore it's figurative. The others who say it's literal say so because it's mentioned in Revelation 20 and it seems to be tied to historic events. So here's what we can say about the Great Tribulation. It is a period of great suffering inaugurated as a manifestation of God's justice in the world, right? God is a just and righteous God and there will be suffering for those who do not find him and do not follow him. All right, here we go. This is what it looks like. And if you want to go to uh, Wikipedia, this is literally where I drew this from and, and you can study these for as long as you want. But let's start on the left and these passages that I just read from Revelation chapter 20 have to do with this idea of millennialism or, millennial, or millennialism either way. And is it literal or is it figurative? If it is literal, you are in a camp that looks at it according to these top two graphs. If you are figurative, you are looking at it in the camp that has to do with these bottom two graphs. So to put that on a timeline, what we're simply seeing is if you take this thousand year reign and you say that it's literal, and I'm sorry, it gets really, really messy here, and you are what's called a post tribulational premillennialismist. If you're one of those folks, you see the cross, you see the tribulation, and then you see this thousand year reign. And in this thousand year reign, you have the second coming and then the final judgment, right? So just forget the words, look at the graph. (laughs) That's probably the most helpful part. So for those who take the thousand year reign of Revelation chapter 20 as literal, this is one way that they look at it. Christ came, he's coming again. After he comes again for the second time, you have a thousand year reign and then the last judgment. 
that's not an unfair reading if you take the thousand-year reign literally or uh, literally. And I'm not telling you whether to take it literally or figuratively. Plenty of faithful Christians have fallen on both sides of this camp. I'm just putting out there what's been interpreted from these camps. So that's post-tribulational pre-millennialism. I'm going to wash my mouth out with soap once I'm done. Then you've got a a literal interpretation that is a pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialism. Everybody say that with me. Um, The idea of this is that Christ came, then the tribulation happens with a second coming specifically for the church and the church gets raptured here. Then he comes again with the church, then the thousand year reign and then the last judgment. So the difference here simply being the number of times Christ is going to come back to the earth and the purposes for which he's going to come back. He's going to come, if you're in the second camp, he's going to come back. He's going to rapture the church. He's going to come again. He's going to bring the church with him. The church is going to reign for a thousand years and then off we go into eternity at the last judgment. So far, so good. Sorry, Carolyn. It's the best I can do with this. Then you've got the folks who take the more figurative approach to this idea of Christ's thousand-year reign, and they are in two camps, post-millennialism and amillennialism. And that is to say this thousand-year reign is more figurative. Christ came to earth. There is a thousand years. We don't really know what to do with it, but in any event, it happens before the second coming and the last judgment. And then finally, if you're really into the symbolic idea of the millennialism, you're simply saying that Christ came, there is tribulation, there is a a symbolic understanding of how we deal with Christ's reign and the second coming and the last judgment. So if if you're more of a symbolic interpretation of the thousand year reign, you're just dealing with timeline. Is that is that thousand years kind of a figurative thousand years and we wanna leave it as a thousand years or is a thousand years representing just an extended period of time of tribulation? And, and, and that's why historically the church has said you have to interpret the thousand years as symbolic because he's coming, Matthew 24, he doesn't talk about it. He's coming, he will come again. And if we're gonna interpret scripture, we're gonna interpret everything else under the banner of the gospels. So let's go with the gospels and, and, and we'll kind of throw a lot of other things, particularly in Revelation under the figurative symbolic camp and say he's coming and he will come again. No one, no one knows the hour. So we, and, that's, and that's where the creeds come from, right? I have not seen a good commentary that offers an answer. Maybe my clergy can help, but I've never seen anything that tries to speak to the thousand years and what it symbolizes. Guys, do y'all have anything? But there's not a symbolism behind that literal thousand years that I'm aware of. Marcus, do you? Sure, sure, that's a good thought. But there's, there's really not much more else we can do with that other than look at that idea of God's economy. I don't know that I want to be here with him in the messiness of that rain. <laughs> so I'm going, to, I'm going to throw myself in this symbolic camp because there's going to be a lot of chaos. Tribulation is still happening, but I'm not picking on you. I'm just making my own observation. Yeah, so here's what we say in the liturgy. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. But, the, but these are not unreasonable ways to, to look at the interplay of Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation, and it's about the best we've done with it. So let's leave that um, because we've got three minutes left and I want to get through the six seals in three minutes. So here we go. Um, So there are only six of seven seals open, which means the end has not yet come, right? There's an incompletion in six and a perfection in seven. So six of the seven seals have been released. 
Again, there's a culmination of worship. So here's the seals very quickly. We're going to get this down on videotape and you can go back and watch it later because I'm going to do this lightning speed. First seal is a declaration that God will win. It's a white horse with a bow and a crown and he's come to conquer and to conquer. Symbolism, God wins, right? That's the declaration that God will win. Second seal, removal of God's peace, tumult of war symbolized by a red horse. The idea being, if you don't want my peace, you're not going to have my peace, right? God's going to unleash war on the unjust because guess what? That's what they're already doing. Christians are a people of peace. If you don't want my peace, you're not going to have my peace. Third seal, black horse with a pair of scales in its hand. Black is suggestive of death. Scales indicate justice. Contextually, it's tied to the economic injustices of the world. A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts for barley for a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage, and it would normally purchase eight to 16 times the amount that's represented here. So there's an economic injustice that's being talked about in the idea of wheat and denarius and barley. The point is that there is economic injustice in the world and there's a lack of money in a sense from a temporal point of view. However, don't harm the oil and the wine. So this is contrasted against the lack of earthly needs and it's suggested that the people of God are being preserved. Why? What do oil and wine represent? Sacramental theology. Oil is healing. Wine is the Eucharist. So in stark contrast to the people of the world who are suffering lack, you've got the people of God who are being preserved symbolically through the oil and the wine and the Old Testaments. If they're going to talk about things that are necessary, grain and wine and oil are among the top three things that we're going to talk about, but we can interpret that sacramentally as well. Fourth seal, pale horse, rider's name is death, Hades follows him. The idea of pale is illness unto death, right? And Hades is the second death for the unrepentant. So Hades follows death, right? For those who are unwilling to come to Christ, you're going to be sick unto death and you're going to die an eternal death. Fifth seal. Fifth seal are the souls of the martyrs protected by the altar of God, right? They're under the altar of God. They appeal to God to exercise his vengeance against unrighteousness. And then they are covered again. So not only are they covered by the altar of God, but you see that they're adorned in these white robes of purity until the witness of the martyrs is fulfilled. And that gets us to the sixth seal. The sixth seal is a preview of the coming destruction of the first heaven and the first earth, which is separated by sin. God's justice is going to be exercised against the unrighteous pagans who, number one, they flee and they hide for fear of God's punishment. Number two, and this is the important part, they actually cry out to the mountains and the rocks. What does that represent? But the pagan gods who cannot help them. And then because of their idolatry, they know. They know they can't stand under the judgment, right? That's the important point of this. They are always aware of the just judgment of God. They simply refuse to follow it. And so they live in fear and unrefusal or refusal to repent. So here's the final thing we're going to say, and I'm going to make it in under the 1010 banner. Whatever else we're going to say about these things, we're going to say that the end times actually started with the coming of Jesus. And the main point is that we prepare ourselves for our own death and judgment, right? Because whether we're alive when Christ comes back or not, at some point we all go down to the grave. And the question is, what are we doing now with the time that we've been given? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word, and sometimes we have a hard time wrestling with it, living 2,000 years after the fact, especially this book in particular. So we ask your Holy Spirit to continue to give us wisdom and discernment to understand what you're saying to us so that we would rightly live our lives in your sight for the honor of your name, for the edification of the church, and the conversion of the world through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.